It's our practice in Crossbridge that we typically preach through portions of or whole books of the Bible as they were written and meant to be heard. Now, because of that, every once in a while, we'll come across a passage that is difficult or uncomfortable. Now, we could elect to preach topical series all the time, and it's not really anything wrong with topical series, but if we did so, we could very easily skip over all the difficult or uncomfortable passages in the Bible, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Some of you might remember this, but I'm not going to fault you if you don't. Uh, seven years ago, I preached my first sermon at this church, Joshua chapters 18 to 19. Two chapters on geographical boundary lists. Really exciting stuff. Great for a first sermon. Extremely tweetable. Now, uh, the passage was given to me as a seminarian because, you know, we're going through the book of Joshua and I don't think I had much of a choice. But if we skipped over these kinds of passages, we'd be missing out on a part of scripture that is as much the word of God as John 3.16, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 John 4, 8. Now, these passages, it might be difficult because it's unclear what's going on. It might be uncomfortable because of what's going on. This morning, we're doubly blessed because our passage is both difficult and uncomfortable. It's not a passage that I think we'll find in the children's Bible. Uh, the scene in our passage pretty sure was not included in the Prince of Egypt movie way back when. And that's because the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is, is not always PG. Because we're dealing with the fallenness, the sinfulness of men and women alike. And also with God's holiness and his justice. Now, I recognize this morning that you know many of us are worshiping at home with our children. Maybe some of them are even uh, listening to the sermon this morning, which is great. They are a part of the church, our church. And as much as we look to preach God's word boldly and clearly, I also want to be sensitive to how we communicate and exposit God's word, particularly for our younger individuals. Our passage this morning is going to cover aspects of human anatomy, circumcision, and even euphemisms. And there's only so much we can address, I can address and explain in one 30-minute sermon. So to reiterate part of Pastor Bowman's message, his sermon last Sunday during Father's Day, we want our parents, our CB parents, to take it home. To take it home. Undoubtedly, there might be more questions asked by our children than answered by the end of this morning's message. So I want to encourage all of you guys, I encourage our CB families to continue the, the discipleship for children at home. Now with that said, Let's, let's turn to our passage. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can flip or, or scroll to Exodus 4, 24-31. We see there that Moses is on his way back to Egypt to deliver God's message to Pharaoh. And we're going to see two scenes in our passage, verses 24-26 to and verses 27-31. to Right from the start, it says, The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. It immediately begs the question, why is God seeking to kill this person, whoever he is? And and what is feeding into our passage, what is going to help us kind of understand why all this is happening is uh, the theme or the the understanding of God's covenant. We've kind of touched upon this before in, in past sermons. 
More specifically, it's the fact that God's covenant is not without conditions. God's covenant is not without conditions. This is verses 24 to 26. So if you still have your Bibles open, and you know, we're just a few minutes in, hopefully, uh, you turn, turn with me to Genesis 17, 10 to 14. There in Genesis 17, we see God is making his covenant with Abraham. He had already made those promises to Abraham regarding descendants, land, and blessing to the nation. So God, in his grace, comes and, and chooses Abraham and his offspring. Now here, a few chapters later, God is ratifying his covenant with Abraham and his offspring. And he says there in chapter 17, verses 10 to 14, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So uh, uh, almost immediately we see that this covenant has conditions. God's covenant with Abraham required circumcision. Circumcision, this is the part where we get to all the stuff that's uncomfortable. Circumcision was the removal of the foreskin, or if you will, the skin sleeve, from a male's reproductive organ. It is gory, bloody, and exceptionally intimate. And so we might be left wondering, why circumcision? We'll get to that in a bit. But for now, we see that God's covenant It's a covenant of grace, but it still has conditions. The condition was circumcision, the removal of the foreskin. This was how Israel, the people of God, were to be marked off from the rest of the nations. And the consequence of failing to faithfully fulfill these covenant obligations was being cut off. So he says in verse 14, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. To be cut off, more often than not, it meant death. You know, if not death, then at the very least, it was a very serious penalty that meant being cut off from God and from his people. But again, if you look at a lot of the passage where this comes up, it's death. And we kind of see this going on even in Exodus chapter 4. That's how our passage this morning begins. The Lord sought to put him to death. So God's covenant is not without conditions. This is, maybe this is a little bit crass, uh, even as it is concise, so perhaps a little bit more memorable to help us keep it in mind. But God's covenant condition essentially says, cut it off or be cut off. Cut it off or be cut off. I guess that part is tweetable, but I I don't know if I would without the context. So knowing all of this, you know, let's go back now to our passage in, passage in Exodus 4. Now, as we said, the, the passage is both uncomfortable and difficult. 
we kind of touch on the uncomfortable part. And now what makes it difficult is that there's a lot of textual ambiguities in our passage. But most of our English translations actually smooth it over by making the interpretive decisions for us. But let me read to you what it literally says, and you can try to follow along in your English Bibles and try to notice some of the differences. So beginning at verse 24, at a logging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, surely you are a blood relative to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a blood relative because of the circumcision. Do you know this, the difference? It was, some of it was subtle, but significant. Moses is never mentioned. Uh, all we have are a bunch of pronouns, him and his. And, and bridegroom of blood literally means blood relative. Now, in a lot of passages, it, it can mean bridegroom. And here, you know, it would make sense to read it that way if we think the pronouns refer to Moses. And if you think if it was, uh, if you think it was Moses' feet that was touched, but now, that's also a lot of ifs as well. Now add all this uh, to the fact that feet in the Bible doesn't always mean feet. Feet is a euphemism for the male's reproductive organs. Because I guess perhaps the biblical authors were a little bashful of using the actual words in some cases, or the actual expressions, like how I keep using the term reproductive organs instead of that which must not be named. So here, uh, context will usually determine whether feet means feet, or feet means feet. So all of these textual ambiguities then raises a few questions. Who is God trying to kill and why? Whose feet does Zipporah touch with the foreskin? Uh, who is Zipporah speaking to? And why does she say what she says when she intervenes? Now, when we look at the pronouns, the choices for us are basically Moses or Moses' firstborn son, Gershom. Neither are explicitly mentioned by name, and we're kind of left to infer, based on the context, what's going on. And when you look at commentaries and journal articles and all that stuff, scholarship is pretty divided over the particularities of this passage. I think one possibility of reading this passage is that the pronouns him and his refer to Gershom, not Moses. Again, you know, this is far from definitive, but I think it's something worth considering. So this, if you know, if we were to read it this way, this basically means that as Moses is traveling with his family back to Egypt, God seeks to put Gershom, Moses' firstborn son, to death. It's not clear how that happens, how, how they know. Maybe it's some sickness or some other sort, form of divine intervention. But Zipporah has enough insight to know what's happening, to know that it has something to do with circumcision and covenant. And so she steps in and intervenes, circumcises Gershom, touches Gershom's feet with the foreskin, and as she does so, she calls him a blood relative. The Israelites, they weren't the only ones to practice circumcision back in the ancient Near Eastern culture. The, the Egyptians, uh, they practiced it. They had a partial circumcision. Uh, the Midianites, which is the group that Zipporah belonged to, they practiced it as well. So it's, it's possible that in the midst of the intervention, Zipporah utters the only word she knows from her own people's practice, declaring that Gershom, having been circumcised, was indeed part of God's covenant people, not cut off. And so God relents. 
And I think a case could be made for Gershom for two main reasons. First, and we've kind of read from Genesis 17 as a background already, that any uncircumcised male would be cut off from his people. That meant cut off from God and, and ultimately death. Gershom here is the one being circumcised here in response to the threat of death. It makes sense then that Gershom is the one being threatened. The him then, when we start off with verse 24, it's what we call a proleptic pronoun. It, it points forward, not backwards. So it points forward to verse 25 and it refers there to Gershom where he's mentioned as the, as the son. Now, secondly, uh, two weeks ago, uh, if you might remember, I mentioned that our chapter actually had three firstborn sons. You know, even though we were talking about the first two at the time, uh, God's firstborn son, Israel, and Pharaoh's firstborn son. And having kind of finished that portion of scripture, we have just finished talking about the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son due to Pharaoh's disobedience and his rebellion against God. And now we quickly transition. We see Moses' firstborn son threatened as well because God's covenant has conditions. It was cut it off or be cut off. And not even Moses, as great as a leader as he was, as righteous as he was, at the time, even though he had that relationship with God, the burning bush, all of that, not even he was exempt from covenant obedience, covenant faithfulness. I think that's one of the main takeaways from this first section, that, that God's covenant of grace requires covenant obedience. Because, you know, it may be true that it's actually Moses, not Gershom, that is in uh, danger here. Because I, I don't want us to walk away without any assurance that we can't figure out what God is saying here. We can still understand the larger picture. Perhaps... Now, if we were to understand it as Moses, perhaps Moses, following the practice of the Egyptians, was not fully circumcised. Maybe God was punishing Moses for not circumcising his son. But again, either way, this doesn't change the larger message. One pastor put it this way, being called is no excuse for being compromised. Being called is no excuse for being compromised. And yes, Moses was called by God for this enormous task of delivering God's people from serving Pharaoh as slaves to the freedom of serving God as sons. But one way or another, Moses had not followed through on one of the most fundamental and important parts of the covenant relationship with God. That was circumcision as an outward expression of being the people of God. So basically, how could Moses go deliver God's people when he couldn't even fulfill the conditions of being God's people, whether that was for him or his son. So, in the background of these first few verses is God's covenant with Abraham and his people Israel. And that had conditions, namely, be circumcised. There's other things too, and if we were to continue on, we would kind of see in the second half of Exodus, Israel has been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They're encamped at Mount Sinai, and God is laying out now, this is what it looks like for me to be your God and you to be my people. This is what it looks like to, to live as God's people, God's covenant people. And so part of what we're talking about there, what we see there is, God, uh, is obedience. 
No, it begins with grace. Even when we look at the Ten Commandments, God first begins with what he's done. He's come down in his grace and rescued uh, Israel. And then he stipulates the Ten Commandments as a, as a form of response. I hear God's covenant required circumcision. But as we'll see, it doesn't get rid of the, doesn't solve everything. Because circumcised flesh is not a substitute for a circumcised heart. Even though the circumcised flesh it, it marked off the people, it did not make them obey. You know, that's to say it didn't create a deep desire in them to obey God, to fulfill his and follow his commandments. Because even as God continued to remain faithful to his covenant, God's people would continue in unfaithfulness, breaking the covenant repeatedly over and over and over again. And it was because circumcised flesh is not a substitute for a circumcised heart. Moses writes to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 and following. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. He continues on, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And several chapters later, at the end of Deuteronomy, there's this promise. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So that you don't get cut off. This promise of a circumcised heart was going to come, but it was going to come later. Accomplished by Jesus in the new covenant. Now, Tim Keller, he has a pretty good definition, I think, of, of what it looks like to have a circumcised heart. And he defines it this way. When what you ought to do and what you want to do are the same thing. What you most ought to do, what you most want to do, are the same thing. So he uses, uh, he uses the example of John Newton's hymn to express what a circumcised heart looks like. And I'll read you the lyrics. Our pleasure and our duty... Though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. John Newton, he, he was a guy who wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, he was a slave trader turned abolitionist and clergy. I think what's really interesting here is that as Newton writes this hymn on pleasure and duty, these last two lines transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. And we see glimpses of this in Israel and in Exodus. But we also see that it, it, it's going to point forward to the unfolding of God's story of redemption in Jesus. Israel was delivered from serving Pharaoh as slaves to serving God as sons. They had the freedom to serve. Now again, we, we realize they're still enslaved to sin. They couldn't keep the conditions of the covenant. So God's, uh, God's going to establish a new covenant in Jesus. He will give you a new heart, a circumcised heart. A teacher of mine once spoke at a retreat 
and he asked the students, is salvation earned? Almost immediately, many quickly said, no, of course not. Salvation isn't earned. Is salvation earned? Yes, it is earned. Salvation is earned, but not by us. Salvation is earned by Jesus and gifted to us. So what he meant was that there were aspects of God's covenant, both the old and the new, that, that were unconditional. And there were aspects that were conditional. In the new covenant, salvation was conditioned upon Jesus living a sinless life and dying a sinner's death. If that didn't happen, we don't have salvation. In that sense, it was conditional because we, we need and needed Christ's active and passive obedience. It was unconditional in that it is guaranteed by God. Now, when we kind of go back to Genesis 17 and, and now Exodus 4, we arrive at that question here. Why circumcision? Why couldn't they just sign on a dotted line or something like that, right? Exodus 4 talks about two things in particular. The Passover with the, the death of the firstborn and also circumcision. And in both cases, we kind of see how the application of blood is used as a means to avert God's wrath. So, Zipporah touches the foreskin to his feet, and God leaves him alone. In Exodus 12, 22, Moses instructs the elders of Israel to touch, the same word there, touch the blood-soaked hyssop to the lintel and the doorposts, and God leaves them alone. Now, these occurrences, they, they play their part in the narrative. But maybe you also see what it's doing. You know, imagine as you're reading this for the first time, perhaps, as you're going from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's giving us the theological vocabulary and more importantly, the theological categories. It's carving out categories in our mind so that when we get to the New Testament, when Jesus arrives on the scene, we can make complete sense of his atoning work on the cross. Because Jesus is the firstborn son that God sends to save us. Jesus is the one who was cut off for us, experiencing the curse of the covenant so that he might cut off our sinful nature. Jesus came as the sacrificial son to save us, that we might be redeemed from serving sin to serving God as his sons and daughters. So why does God seek to put him to death, you know, whether that's Moses or Gershom? Because God's covenant is not without conditions. And not even Moses, not even Moses is exempt from faithful covenant obedience. But as we know, circumcised flesh is not a substitute for a circumcised heart. So thanks be to God who remembers his covenant, and who, through Jesus Christ, fulfills the conditions of salvation for us. And in this last scene in our passage, we're reminded that God hears, sees, remembers, and knows. And when God remembers, we respond. Verses 27 to 31, when God remembers, we respond. After this strange encounter along the way, Moses makes it back to his people, uh, and, and they kind of do what was, was said 
earlier in, in the chapters and the passages. Moses and Aaron together, they delivered the words of the, uh, of the Lord and performed the signs in the sight of the people. Verse 31 says, And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The people believed and worshipped. What that meant is that they trusted in God for salvation. Not in the message, not in the messenger, but in God. God remembered his covenant. And if you recall, to, re to remember doesn't mean covenant recollection as if God had somehow forgotten, but covenant application. God is going to honor the, the terms of his covenant now. He's going to, to do something. Likewise today, God continues to hear, see, remember, and know. He does so with respect to the new covenant in Jesus. We, we have the promises uh, in the new covenant. All of our promises are yes and amen in, in Christ. But he also continues to hear, see, remember, and know with respect to our lives and what's going on. And then our response then is, in, in view of his grace and mercy extended to us, towards us, is to trust and obey. Trust and obey. Today we finish our sermon series through the first four chapters of Exodus. Yeah, if we started this in the first week of May, a lot has happened since then. You know, we're still in this pandemic. It doesn't seem to be getting that much better. We've seen our nation rocked by protests, riots, unrest in response to racial injustice. And while we declare that God remembers his covenant promises, and we see this ultimately in Jesus, we're also reminded that God hears sees, remembers, and knows what's going on right now at our doorstep. What's going on in our lives and in our world. Because God is neither distant nor indifferent. He's at work for his glory and creation's good. When we look at the story of Israel in Exodus in these first few chapters, we're reminded that the way that God works sometimes, you know, it may not be as fast as we want. It may not be as visible as we want. But even looking at Israel and Exodus, we're reminded that he is at work. That he does remember his covenant promises. Our response then is to believe and worship. To trust and obey. As Paul writes at the end of Romans, now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your grace and your goodness towards us. We give you thanks that we have this covenant relationship with you because of Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would, with circumcised hearts, continue to obey you, continue to faithfully follow you, knowing that you hear, see, remember, and no.
we give you praise and thanks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.